can see you this morning. Glad that you're here. If you are a visitor of ours, we are especially honored to have you with us this morning as we talk about some things that I think God wants us to talk about. Talk about some things that are in His Word this morning. And I want to start with a story that you've probably heard before. A uh, fellow took his dog to the veterinarian and told the vet, I'd like you to cut the tail off of my dog. The doctor said, why in the world would you want the tail cut off your dog? The gentleman said, well, next week my mother-in-law is coming to visit, and I don't want to give her any reason to think we're happy to see her. <laughs> You've heard that before. But I use it to make the point of, you know, we've been talking about family now for several weeks, and family is a wonderful thing. And we know that family is such a blessing. But we also know that, that family can be a little bit frustrating sometimes. And family can be a little complicated sometimes, and maybe even a little contentious at times. But here's a universal truth. The closer a family gets, the more open we can be with each other. Now, you know that's true, right? It, when, a, when a family's sitting on all cylinders, when a family's operating like it's supposed to operate, you can really talk about just about anything. You know, we can be honest and open and, and transparent, and we can talk about anything because you know that that person, that family member, has your best interest at heart, and you have their best interest at heart. So you can really talk about anything when a family's working like it ought to be working. Now, with that in mind, let me share with you a couple of scenarios. Think about this. You take your car in for a tune-up. You, you drop it off in the morning. When you pick it up later that afternoon, the mechanic says, wow, this is an amazing vehicle. In fact, you are like an automotive genius the way you have maintained this car. It is in tip-top shape. I mean, everything is perfect on this car. Later that afternoon, you're driving down a little grade and you realize, I don't have any brakes. And you end up in the ditch. And you pop the hood and there's no brake fluid in your car. You go back to the mechanic and say, hey, why didn't you tell me there was no brake fluid in my car? And the mechanic says, well, I didn't want you to feel bad. I want my mechanic shop here to be a safe place where everybody's loved and respected. It wouldn't be good for business to tell people they have a problem with their car. What would, you, what would you say to that mechanic? And when it comes to our car, we want people to tell us the truth, right? Here's another scenario. You go to the doctor for a checkup. The doctor says, wow, you're amazing. You have the body of like an Olympic athlete. I mean, you're, you're in great shape. That afternoon, you're going up a flight of steps and you pass out. And you realize, I was like one Krispy Kreme donut away from a heart attack. So you go back to the doctor and say, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? And the doctor says, well, actually, yeah, you've got a lot of things wrong with you, but I didn't want to tell you that. Because then you wouldn't want to come back to my office. And I want people to feel good about themselves when they leave my office. So I want this to be a safe place where, where everybody feels loved and respected. How would that go over with you? You wouldn't want to go back to that doctor, would you? Why? Because when it comes to our health, we want people to tell us the truth. You see the, the title of today's sermon. You listen to the stories I've just told. Anybody want to guess where we're headed this morning? When something matters to us, we don't want some illusion that everything's okay. When something really matters, 
we want people to tell us the truth, don't we? And really, the more something matters, the more truthful we want people to be with us. So let me ask you kind of a, an easy question this morning. I don't make sure you can see that. How much does your soul really matter to you? Talk about you know, your car, your health. How much does your soul really matter to you? And let me give you one more scenario. Imagine going to a church where you hear, we're not going to talk about the way you treat other people. We're not going to talk about the way you treat you know, your spouse or your kids. We're not going to talk about your anger issues. We're not going to talk about things like you know, greed or anything like that. We're certainly not going to talk about money, you know, how you spend your money and you know, your priorities. Uh, we're not going to talk about any of those things because we want this to be a safe place. And we want everyone to really feel good when they leave here. And so, yeah, we'll talk about sin sometimes, but it's always going to be kind of out there somewhere. Now, we're not going to talk about your sin. We're not going to get personal, and we're not going to hold you accountable for anything because, because we want you to feel good. Now, how would you like a church like that? And some of you are thinking, sounds good. I, I kind of like a church like that. Because for a lot of people, we want the truth about our car, and we want the truth about our, our health, but we don't really want to hear the truth when it comes to our soul. Now, I think you know I'm a really big fan of grace. I love to think about grace. I'm not sure I completely understand the whole concept of grace the way God intended me to understand it, but I like to read about it, I like to think about it, I like to preach about it, but I don't worship grace. I worship Jesus. Let me tell you what Jesus, uh, what John says about Jesus as he begins his gospel. John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word, talking about Jesus, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. We're all about Jesus. Now, if you're a guest of ours today, what are you guys all about? We're all about Jesus. He's the one and only. He came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. We need grace, but we need truth. And one without the other really doesn't get it. And you've probably figured out, if you know your Bible very well, where we're headed for our anchor text this morning. The book of Ephesians, you can go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 4. Paul is writing to Christians in Ephesus, and they had a truth problem. They loved hearing about good things, and, and they didn't want to be held accountable to too much. So Paul says this. He said, instead of doing that, do this. In verse 15, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Him who is the head, that is Christ. I need people to speak the truth to me. I would prefer it to be in love. But I need people to speak the truth to me. And you know why I need that? Because I've got a sin problem. I don't know exactly how bad it is, but I know it's worse than I think it is. So I need people to speak the truth to me. Listen to a couple of statements from God's Word. Uh, John says in 1 John chapter 1, if we claim we are without sin, we deceive ourselves, which is an interesting phrase. 
proclaim without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Or this from the prophet Obadiah, the pride of your heart has deceived you. Or try this one from Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Michael Novak wrote, our capacity for self-deception knows no limits. And what he's saying is, we are really good at deceiving ourselves. We are really good at rationalizing things away. What he's saying is, Satan, the enemy, is alive and well. And we are dealing with that not just on a daily basis, but you know, on a constant basis. And the thing about being deceived is, you don't know you're being deceived while you're being deceived, right? Isn't that kind of the definition? Satan is trying to deceive us all the time, and, and we don't even realize it. Now, in this series so far, we've talked about dating. We've spent several weeks talking about marriage. Last week, we talked about children and, and parenting a little bit. And I'm not exactly sure where this particular sermon fits. I'm not exactly sure where to slot it. Um, I hope that it's got some things that are going to be applicable to all of this, but I, I'm going to challenge especially you younger people. When I say younger, I'm thinking middle school, high school, college, young adults. I'm going to challenge you to pay attention this morning and try to listen uh, as generously as you can. We're talking about family. But, but we're a family, right? We're a church family. We're brothers and sisters. And when a, when a family is sitting on all cylinders, we ought to be able to talk about just about anything, shouldn't we? Knowing that we have each other's best interests at heart. So... I want to talk about some specific things this morning where I think Satan is deceiving us and we don't even see it and we don't even know it. And some areas where I think Satan is deceiving our children. And it might sound like a waste of time to some of you. It might be uncomfortable for some of you. Um, it might be offensive to some of you, but that's certainly not my intention. I want, to, I want to ask you to listen as graciously and as lovingly as I'm going to try to say it. I'm actually hoping that I'm going to let God do most of the talking here. But some things that we can talk about as a family. Areas where Satan is deceiving us and deceiving our children. Uh, in the fifth chapter of Ephesians, you turn back to the fifth chapter of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is talking to a group of people who, as hard as it might be for us to believe, actually are probably living in a, in a worse culture than we are. Just a lot of uh, frightening, disgusting things going on in that society. And here's what Paul tells them. Verse 15 of Ephesians 5. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Paul tells these Christians in Ephesus, don't get drunk on wine. The message from our culture is, drink responsibly. Which is so absurd to me. I mean, that message to me is so absurd. You know, as if a bunch of 22-year-olds are sitting around going, you know, Stan, I think we're on the verge of drinking irresponsibly. <laughs> because at that moment, at 22 years old, they don't care. And your 22-year-old or your 14-year-old isn't going to drink responsibly. They're, they're going to drink to get drunk. 
Now, before I go any further, I, I probably should share with you a few details, kind of in the spirit of total you know, disclosure here. I don't drink alcohol at all. None. Zero. I never have. And there's a couple reasons for that. One, I grew up in a home where there was no alcohol. It, it just wasn't an issue. My parents did not drink, still don't. My older siblings did not drink. They, they still don't. It just wasn't part of the culture that I grew up in. But then when I got a little bit older, I had to start deciding for myself how I was going to respond and how I was going to live. And my experience with other people's experience with alcohol, what I saw was 100% negative. Might not be the situation for you, but for me, what I saw regarding alcohol has been 100% negative. 50 plus years of living, 20 plus years of ministry, it has been 100% negative. It's wives who have been abused by alcoholic husbands. It's best friend in high school who killed himself in a, in a car accident after drinking. It's anger. It's violence. It's, it's tearing homes apart. It's tearing families apart. Again, maybe that's not true for everyone, but that's been my experience. I have never had anyone tell me this story. You know, my wife and I were having so much problems, so many problems. We were so many struggles. And we were just barely hanging on by a thread. And then, and then we started drinking. And everything seemed to get better. No one has ever told me that. But boy, I've sat and listened to a lot of couples say, you know what, alcohol is tearing our family apart. I have never heard this story. You know, our son was just running. He was running from us. He was running from God. He was just like, he was like the prodigal son. And so I told him, you ought to try alcohol. And it, it, the healing process started. No one has ever told me that story. But I've sat with too many parents who have cried and talked about, you know, my son, my daughter started drinking and, and I feel like we've lost them. I've had a lot of people tell me some really sad stories, but I've never had anyone ever tell me, once we introduced alcohol to the equation, things got better. It's always the opposite. So Paul says, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I certainly don't want to debauch. Anybody debauch this past week? Any debauchery going on? We don't even know what the word means, right? Well, I know what the word means. I looked it up. It means unrestrained immoral behavior. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to unrestrained immoral behavior. And when you put that together with what Paul is saying, his warning becomes pretty serious. He says, be careful. Be wise. Don't be foolish. Understand how God wants you to live. Don't get drunk because it leads to immoral behavior. And then Paul goes on to say something really, really important. Says something, if something's going to influence your behavior, why don't you allow someone to influence your behavior? Paul's telling these Christians in Ephesus, you need to set a personal standard for your level of living. Rather than, rather than allowing alcohol to influence your behavior, why don't you instead be influenced by the Holy Spirit? If you're going to give up control to something, why not give up control to someone? 
Why not be filled with the Holy Spirit? He's going to tell Timothy this in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. I want to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. I want to pursue a pure heart. So I'm, I've decided not to allow alcohol to influence the way I drive my car, the way I treat my wife, the way I treat my family, the way I go looking for a good time. I want the Holy Spirit to be that influence. And, and I know what you're thinking. I know what you're going to say. Well, the Bible says don't get drunk. It doesn't say don't drink. That's right. That's what it says. But why would I start down any road that leads to sin? Why would I take one step down a road that leads to sin that I know is going to have an effect on my family, it's going to have an effect on my Christian influence, it's certainly going to have an effect on my children. I told you, I, was, I, I feel blessed to have grown up in a home where alcohol wasn't an issue. I don't know if I would be saying the same things if it had been. Why would I want to get as close as I can to sin? And I'll say this too, I've, I've never forgotten something that my big brother Randy said to me when I was 16 years old. Just starting to drive a car. He said, you're going to have to decide that if you are ever in an accident, regardless of the situation, regardless of the circumstances, no matter whose fault it might be, if you are ever in an accident and you know that you had been drinking, regardless of how much it was, and somebody was hurt, or God forbid, killed, could you live with yourself? When I was 16, I decided I couldn't. And I've extrapolated that into looking back on my family, looking back on my, you know, my parenting, the way I treat other people, and if alcohol in some way caused me to act ungodly, I don't want to go there. So the only way for me, personally, to drink responsibly is to not to drink at all. Here's another message that, that our culture puts out. And I say our culture because it sounds so much safer, right? It's Satan. Satan's the one with the message. And uh, I guess I'm picking on uh, you women right now, especially you younger women. And the message is, you need to dress a little sexier than you're dressing. You need to turn heads. You know, be a little bit provocative. A few years ago, there was an ad campaign aimed at a younger audience for sure. And their tagline was, Global Warming Ready. And of course, what they were trying to sell and their ads were trying to show was, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna sell clothing that doesn't cover up too much of your body. The whole point of the, of the campaign. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2. I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. Again, I guess I'm speaking to women, and Paul's certainly speaking to women here. 
And what Paul is saying is it matters the way you dress. Is he talking about modesty? I think that's certainly part of it. It matters the way you dress, where your focus is, what your motivation is. And by the way, ladies, Paul is speaking very forcefully here, but he is not speaking nearly as forcefully to you as Jesus is speaking to us men in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, Jesus says this, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Jesus is telling us men, in no uncertain terms, you better guard your heart and you better do it by guarding your eyes. You better pay very close attention to what you're looking at and how you're looking in fact, Jesus says it here, Paul's going to say it in Galatians, that kind of lustful longing can keep you out of heaven. That's how high the stakes are. You know, our, as men, our, our salvation is hanging in the balance here. And you women might be thinking, well, if you're looking at me that way, that's your problem. Yes, that's my problem. That's what I'm trying to say. That's our problem. We're wired that way. And we desperately need your help to keep us from sinning. We need you. We're family. We need our sisters to help us. Think of it this way. You wouldn't walk into a room where you saw a bunch of us men doused in kerosene. You wouldn't walk in there, ladies, and start striking matches and throwing them, would you? I would hope you'd rather be part of the solution than, than part of the problem. How you dress matters. The length of your skirt, the cut of your blouse, it matters. And if we're family, we ought to be concerned with helping each other not to sin. And before I move on, let me be sure and say this, and I want you to hear this. All of you ladies, old, young, in between, who dress so very modestly as a Christian man, let me say thank you. As a dad, let me say thank you. God notices. God sees. He sees what you wear. You're honoring Him with the way you dress. And for those of you who are younger and you're, you're tired of your friends saying, oh, you dress so boring. You, know, you look like you're in the 1800s. Come on, change your wardrobe. I raised a daughter and she heard all those things all of her life and I know how hurtful that can be. But I'm telling you, don't buy that lie. God is so proud of you when you choose to dress like a daughter of the king. You keep doing the right thing with the way you dress. Well, since I'm on a roll, <laughs> let me share one more lie that, uh, that the world or, or Satan is is trying to tell us and, and trying to tell our young people. Don't have sex till you're ready. Again, that message is so absurd to me. Don't have sex until you're ready. Young people, don't have sex till you're ready. I don't even know how that conversation would go. Are you ready? I don't know. I, I think I might, I don't know, I'm ready. Let's, let's get a calendar. You know, we'll see. I, I think I'm going to be ready in, in three weeks. Yeah, we'll, then we'll be ready. God's word is crystal clear on this. 
There is no ambiguity on this one. Now, we can argue nuances on some of these other things, but you can't argue this one. God never says, wait until you're ready. God never says, wait until you're in love. God never says, wait until the right person comes along. God always says, wait until you're married. It has always been God's design and God's desire for sexual intimacy to be between a husband and a wife, period. There's, there's, not, there's no other way to, to, to interpret Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians 4. It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who don't know God. And you know I could fill up screen after screen after screen with what God's Word says about sexual purity. And yet there is a tendency to get as close as we can, as close as we can, as close as we can, as close as we can. Why would we want to go down a road that leads to sin? Why would we want to try to rationalize something that God's Word is so clear on? Well, we never ended up in bed. I did not have sex with that woman. You know what you're doing. And you know what God's Word says. I don't have to spell it out for you. You know. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. Fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So here's what I know about you. Here's what I know about us. None of us plan to mess up our lives. We don't plan to mess up our family. We don't plan to mess up our marriage. Nobody stands before the altar and says, this is going to be like the worst marriage ever. Wait and see. No, nobody says, first we're going to have a couple kids to really complicate things and I'm just going to, I'm going to disregard the vows that I'm making and I'm going to do whatever I can to sabotage this whole thing. No one does that. No one plans to ruin their family. But I'm afraid too many people never plan not to. We don't make plans not to ruin our family. We don't set up boundaries. We don't, we don't set up standards and principles and morals that teach us and our kids and, and hold us accountable to have the kind of relationships that God's called us to have. The kind of relationship that God is allowing us to enjoy. Back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. But among you there must not even be a be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Paul says, let me tell you who you are. You are God's holy people. And because of that, there shouldn't be even a suggestion of sexual immorality, greed, or all these other things, because you're better than that. You're better than that because God's better than that. Paul says you've got to quit getting as close as you can to sin. You've got to quit dancing around disaster. You've got to quit kind of getting close and peering over the edge. I think if Paul were talking to us, he would just say, quit messing around. 
Again, I don't have to spell it out for you. Just quit messing around. I think Paul would say, I'm going to speak the truth in love. It's what Paul says to his family. And remember, Paul doesn't say, we need to speak the truth in, in righteous indignation. Or, we need to speak the truth because we're perfect and you're pitiful. Paul says we need to speak the truth in love because we all struggle with sin. All of us struggle with some kind of sin. In a Christian community that's not speaking the truth isn't really doing anybody any good. In a Christian community that's not speaking the truth in love, I'm not sure is really a Christian community. Jesus came full of grace and truth. And the best proof of that is the cross. On the cross, we see the full extent of Jesus' grace. And on the cross, we see the full extent of the truth, the ugliness of my sin and yours. And again, maybe you don't struggle with anything we've talked about this morning, but we all struggle with something. And if some of us struggle with some of it, then as a family, we ought to be able to speak the truth to each other. We ought to be able to talk about it, to encourage each other. So we all sin all the time. Jesus knew that's the reality of who we are. That's the reality of the world we live in. That's why he went to the cross. Jesus didn't come in, in wrath and destruction. He, he came in full of grace and, and full of truth. And as a family, for our families, we need to be speaking the truth in love. It used to hang on our wall here. It used to have a banner. Speaking the truth in love. Let's bow together. Father, we know that there are so many times and so many ways that we let you down. And as much as we want to live with, with you at the center of our lives, that there's another force that wages war within us. And Satan's really good at what he does. And sometimes it seems like he's winning the battle, but we know you've already won the war. So, Father, we thank you for your word, for the encouragement it's in your word, the instruction that's in your word, for the warnings that are in your word. We're thankful, Father, for the people who you've placed in our lives who have loved us enough to share the truth with us. And I'm thankful for Jesus and his life on the earth, the, the, the perfection of truth, and his death on the cross, the perfection of grace. And Father, I pray that we'll never be guilty of being full of truth and all the while ignoring grace. So thank you. Thank you for our families. And I thank you for this family as we try to be more and more like Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen. This morning, if you are subject to the invitation in any way, there's going to be some people at the front. We'd love to meet with you and, and pray with you if we can. Let's stand and sing.